like to begin by uh, recalling a certain data about the relationship Slavoj Zizek and I have, uh, because it's quite uh, strange in some way. Uh, for a long time, uh, Zizek was just uh, a name for me, and in the beginning, he was the name of uh, a translator because he yes. was the first translator, uh, of course, in his, his uh, own language, Slovenian, uh, but he, he was also the first translator ever uh, at that time. I was, uh, was at the beginning of my work, mm. and uh, uh, before Zizek, uh, nobody had, had translated any, anything. And it seemed to me maybe I'm wrong, but it, this interest that came from what was at that time Yugoslavia was connected with the fact that Yugoslavia was a communist country and on the one hand and on the other hand the other fact that in Paris at that time there was an attempt connected with Althusser to rebuild a Marxist approach uh, that would avoid uh, the uh, all the pitfalls of Stalinism, but also of the Italian version of uh, of, uh, of Marxism, mm. and uh, so it's uh, the reason why Zizek uh, was interested by my work was not personal. In, in, uh, connected to, uh, in relation to, in connection with me, to me, uh, it, it may have been personal after that. But at the beginning, it was more connected with a general situation uh, for intellectuals in a country like mm-hmm. Yugoslavia, with respect to intellectuals, Marxist intellectuals uh, in Paris. Of course, the situation changed a lot. Uh, across history, mm. Yugoslavia disappeared. Uh, Slavoj Zizek uh, became a global philosopher, international philosopher mm. rather mm. than uh, than a Slovenian philosopher. While myself remained a French philosopher, I mean, I was not was just like that. I was not very well known outside the uh, uh, national frontiers of, uh, of, uh, of France. Uh, but Zitek kept translating certain parts of my work or giving some signs of interest, but we never met. The first time we met was uh, two years ago or three years ago. In Ljubljana. Yeah, in Ljubljana. So, it's, uh, this relationship is quite strange because on the one hand, it's very constant <coughs> and, and close and connected with uh, great events of uh, what happened in Europe the destruction <coughs> of the classical communism, the uh, re- try, uh, 
attempt to rebuild communism in France. The idea that some people had, some people among which I was, that there was a possible connection between Marxism and Lacan's theory. So our relation was very close on the one hand and very distant on, on, on the other hand since we didn't know each other. And the, f- the first time Zizek didn't translate a text I wrote but directly commented this text, it was uh, in order to criticize me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of uh, ironic, an irony of history. Uh, hence uh, the question that was uh, asked to me uh, by you. Do you loathe Slavoj Zizek? No, And my, my answer w- was uh, that uh, I understand. I understood why the question was raised. It was connected with uh, superficial events, but uh, it didn't take into account because, of course, they were not known. The deepest, uh, the deepest uh, factors uh, of uh, of our relationship, and uh, these deepest factors are connected with uh, European uh, history. history of Marxism, history of Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what happened in France during the 60s and uh, not French theory in the narrow sense or in French theory a wider sense and so on and so on. My own position is I could summarize it uh, in using the term unfaithfulness. I don't know if it exists. I'm not faithful to necessarily to what I've, I have done during or written during, during my life. And of course, for instance, uh, if you if you could read you you, you may read in English uh, for the love of language it has been translated but uh, as far as I know uh, the, les noms indistincts the indistinct uh, nouns have not been translated uh, you you would have I think the the same feeling uh, that uh, Didac uh, felt had a sort of uh, strange way of approaching uh, approaching uh, language and uh, and relationship between uh, language and and things and thoughts. Uh, while on the other hand, what I'm writing today is quite different because I'm talking or writing about uh, factual events, mm. namely mm. French Revolution 
or my very last book, which is a book of uh, entretien. Uh, what what is the English word for that? Uh, an exchange conversation. Uh, conversation, yes, with a with a journalist. Is uh, the title is uh, considerations about France. It's mm. about. See, contemporary or present day France. So it's <coughs> empirical. Well, it was not the case with uh, the book that Zizek mentioned. So there is a sort of unfaithfulness. But on the other hand, I uh, think that uh, the, let, let's call that a, a method, the method I used in my previous book and the method I use today are uh, similar. Mm. So this unfaithfulness is like in, in marriage it's, uh, it's, uh, it's another name for deep faithfulness. But of course... Mm. The, my partner in that case is something I wrote myself mm. so uh, there is no question of divorce or <laughs> alimony or things like that let's talk about this book Relire la Révolution since it, 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 it doesn't exist in English till now I shall begin by s summarize or well underline certain certain points I think are important to me. The first thing, of course, is relire, read again. In read again, where you have two two words, you have to to read and you have again. Why read? Why the question of reading is important for the French Revolution? For a reason, the fact that, first of, first of, first of all, French revolutionaries didn't have to speak to parties because parties did not exist. And, of course, especially not Bolshevized parties. If you think the major texts of Lenin or Mao Zedong are texts that are not addressed to the masses, but they are addressed to the party. There are, in fact, instructions given to the party in order that the uh, intermediary uh, member of the party uh, would explain to the masses what is going on. This sort of double, uh, double level uh, structure did not exist in the French Revolution. The activity of the French revolutionaries was essentially to talk, and to talk aloud about politics. Aloud, that, that means that they could be heard by people who were there, who were, on the one hand, members of an assembly, 
or but also because these uh, these sessions were always open, so including to including to women to women, so they were heard not only by professional, mm. let's say, but by ordinary people. That's one level. The second level was that every important discourse uh, was published, printed. And at that time, it has been, it's a question that, uh, of course, uh, should be raised. How many people could read at that time? Well, the answer has been given quite recently, because a lot of people thought beforehand that a minority of people could read. But the answer is quite the reverse. At that time, the degree of uh, the reading ability, I'm not talking about writing ability, the, 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 the extension of the reading ability was so large that it, it was never reached again till the end of the 19th century in France. For many reasons connected with the way with the, the way the church uh, thought it necessary for Christians to read fluently and uh, so on and so on and the lower church i mean the uh, the uh, the priests of the of the the small villages were quite uh, revolutionary in their ideas. Of course, after that, uh, you had a rupture between the between the, the Catholic priests and the revolution. At the beginning, it was not the case. So, you have really through the texts a direct connection, more direct that it uh, was possible in Russia or in China. A direct connection with every important discourse at that time. So, read, to read this text is important. And of course, I just uh, made an illusion the fact that these texts that were public were public about politics is quite a new thing because for a long time politics were a secret affair. Someone like Montesquieu wrote about politics. L'esprit des lois, the spirit of the laws. I don't know mm. what the English trans- classical translation is. Uh, but it has been shown that uh, Montesquieu wrote in a way that Leo Strauss has uh, analyzed, of course, he wrote in an indirect way. And it was a way of writing about politics at that time. While during the French Revolution, from the beginning, people wrote directly, not in, in an indirect way, but directly, when they thought that the king should be demoted, they said so. They didn't use metaphors or didn't use uh, parables. And they t- 
talk directly about institutions and changes that uh, should be made. Why read again? It's connected with an, an hypothesis. The hypothesis that between the French Revolution and the present-day reader, especially in Europe, something functions as a, a sort of screen, a sort of intermediary screen, which I call in French la croyance révolutionnaire, the revolutionary belief. And this belief has several interesting features. The first feature is the idea that there are a finite set of revolutions that could be called major revolutions. And this finite set, in fact, includes French Revolution, Soviet Revolution, Chinese Revolution. You may add, according to your preferences, to the Cuban Revolution or other events. But these three, uh, three uh, revolutions I quoted are generally considered as a major revolution. Second, people think that these revolutions are in fact ordered. The second one, namely Soviet Revolution, is a way of re of rebuilding what had been achieved by the first one, namely the French Revolution, and in order to go further. And of course, the main point is the question of property. The French Revolution didn't, or well, included property in the rights of man, human rights, while the Soviet Revolution did not include them in the human rights, or well, they didn't speak of human rights, but they considered private property as something that should be destroyed. So this idea, the idea is that one step forward was made. So of course this ordering is an ordering that goes in a progressive way. The second revolution goes further than the first one. And the third revolution when I was a Maoist, it was very clear that the first, third revolution, namely the Chinese revolution, went a step forward with respect to the second one. And in fact, if you read the Chinese text, it's exactly the position that the Chinese had that considered the Russian revolution as incomplete because it had it could not prevent what they called the new Tsars, namely Khrushchev, uh, Brezhnev, and so on. So there was in 
the second revolution, uh, the possibility of being weakened, this possibility was to be fought against by the third revolution. And inside the Chinese revolution, and I bet you distinguishes the first Chinese revolution and the second Chinese revolution, namely the cultural revolution. I'm not sure that he's right, but that's not the, the point. He is. He has. He's right in thinking that the re, cultural revolution thought that it made a, a step forward with respect to the first half of the Chinese Revolution. The first half of the Chinese Revolution was dominated by the Communist Party. The Cultural Revolution made a step forward forward by substituting communes to, to the party. Shanghai Commune, Peking Commune, and so on, so on, and so on. It's a very difficult question, but the idea is there. This this, uh, conception of uh, linear order, which is also uh, progress, makes no sense, makes no sense if you don't believe in a final goal which may have not been reached yet, or you may believe it has been reached. For instance, uh, when I I was a Maoist, we strongly believed that the Cultural Revolution was reaching the final end, which is not the, let's say, the class, the society without classes, but the revolution that will, the last revolution that will produce that. I call this uh, supposition the ideal of revolution. There is an ideal which like uh, in, a, uh, in a classical painting you have a perspective point that organizes uh, the, whole, uh, the whole painting. Well, in the revolutionary be- belief you have uh, a point, an ideal point, which is the ideal of revolution that organi- organizes all the history of mankind, in fact, and all the main events of this history is the main events of this history for someone who believes in revolutions these men's events are precisely the major revolutions but if you believe that but of course I'm not uh, I, I have to uh, to add that this, concept, this conception was uh, represented very early by the Marx by Marx himself and, and the Marxist language 
as opposed to other languages about revolution, for instance, the anarchist language. Mm -hmm. The Marxist language was, in fact, a sort of theoretical gave gave to this revolutionary belief a grammar, a lexicon, a syntax, uh, and uh, in fact uh, a dictionary. So there was a deep connection between the revolutionary belief and the primacy uh, is that an English word? The primacy of uh, uh, the Marxist language. The Marxist way of speaking about reality. This primacy that I, Zizek uh, and I knew, it uh, was still in force uh, in Europe during, uh, during the 60s. Uh, for instance, Wittfogel uh, wrote a book uh, about the uh, Oriental uh, despotism, and in his second edition, uh, which was late 50s, or in the 60s, I don't remember exactly, he says that Marxism was now the lingua franca of the learned world as let's say Aristotle had been in the middle ages Mm. it was impossible to talk about any social or historical event at least in Europe Mm. Western Europe without using this Marxist language and this Marxist language was impossible to deconnect from the, re- the revolutionary belief, and the revolutionary belief was impossible to disconnect from the Marxist language. A consequence of the, this situation was that it was impossible to read revolution, French Revolution, since the reading was in, in a certain certain way, predetermined. Mm. It was impossible to read the text as they were written, because they uh, always they were always read, let's say, belatedly. La, the main example I quoted, I commented in my in my uh, in my book, <coughs> the night of the fourteenth. Of July, the Bastille Day, uh, the king oh, had not been informed. He knew, didn't know what happened. It happened in Paris. The king was in Versailles. He had uh, spent the day uh, in hunting. So nobody uh, around him thought it advisable to tell him that something had happened in Paris. And one nobleman, who was in fact in charge of the hunting, a very important uh, nobleman, thought it was impossible that uh, the king should be advised. And he used all his uh, privileges to 
get to the king who was in his bed uh, eating because he ate every hour of the day uh, and uh, he, he was a very big man uh, uh, more than six feet uh, very uh, very strong so, well and you have this exchange of words which is quite interest, interesting well to, the duke uh, explains to, uh, to the king what happened in Paris the Bastille what happened around the Bastille which was quite violent and the king says well it, c'est une révolte it, it is a revolt a revolt and the answer is no sir it is a revolution of course it's quite interesting but the question is what do they mean if we read this exchange now we feel that we understand what is at stake because we think that the Duke used revolution revolution in the way we use it now as if he was in fact predicting what would happen several years after including the death of the king himself but of course it makes no sense so the question is it's a very simple question about one word but, but the question should be raised about every sentence of every discourse during the French Revolution nobody at that time could speak about politics and know what would happen the following month let's not talk about the following years so what did the duke had in mind have in mind what did the king have in mind because the king understood so we there is a research which is quite philological in that sense I uh, would say that I remain faithful to my interest for nouns. What are the philological basis for the use of the word revolution at a time when the French Revolution had not existed? So that's one research I had to make it's what, it was quite um, philological but it had political con- consequences because from that word only by extending what happened for that unique word to the whole sentences that were uttered during the French Revolution you begin by understanding that the French Revolution should be read in an autonomous way in the same way that uh, for instance Spinoza says well 
you have to explain the scriptures by the scriptures. Or, uh, Jacques-Alain Miller says that Lacan must be explained by Lacan. Well, the French Revolution must be explained by the French Revolution itself. As all political events should be explained, in fact. What I'm trying to do about the French Revolution should be done about the Soviet Revolution and should be done about the Chinese Revolution, of course, but not not taking into account uh, what happened during the, the French Revolution. Trotsky, for instance, is quite convinced at each moment of the Russian Soviet Revolution that they are repeating the French Revolution. The Tsar is like the French king. The Tsarin is like the French queen, Marie-Antoinette. Uh, the, uh, the Mensheviks are like uh, the Girondins. The uh, Bolsheviks are like the Jacobins. Uh, uh, Lenin has some features of uh, Robespierre. He himself has some features of uh, Saint-Just, and so on and so on. And Stalin is Thermidor, no? <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. He says so explicitly. Yeah. <laughs> The, a lot of uh, of writing by uh, by uh, by Trotsky are are based on on this uh, on this repetition. Of course, that's precisely the way to not understand what yeah. happened. Mm-hmm. So, I leave aside the, the question of the Soviet Revolution because I uh, it's it's not what about uh, about that that I wrote. But nevertheless, you have to keep in mind that this re-reading of revolutions in plural uh, should be done for all major revolutions. So, by doing uh, that, uh, that work, well, the first thing, I thought that the common basis that enabled people to understand what the world revolution meant at the time at that time although the revolution itself had not was the beginning was a Greek historian named Polybius. This Greek historian has a theory that it tremendous, tremendously important. It is a basis of, let's say, the the whole political philosophy till the the modern times. Uh, you find it in, in Cicero, you find it in Machiavel, you find it uh, uh, in Montesquieu. The idea is that you have basically three types of regime and the principle is the number of people that hold the power. One, many, all. One, monarchy. Many, aristocracy or oligarchy. 
all democracy. But and this system is connected with a necessity of uh, evolution. The most natural, a direct regime is a regime of the power of the one. In fact, if you read uh, Freud, for instance, uh, you find, I don't think Freud thought of uh, Polybius, but he had the same idea. The, the most natural regime is a regime where the, the father mm. has all the power. In fact, in Tartab in Taboo is Polybian without knowing it. So, the most simple, immediate form of power is the power of one. But this power goes to the, the strongest, the most wise, the wisest, uh, the uh, but of course we are among men men are mortals so this wise man or strong man who holds the power is respected by everyone well he dies and he has followers and the follower he has, the unique follower he has, since it is a monarchy, is not necessarily worthy of the power. So the possibility of uh, a decay of the monarchy is always possible, is always open. The decay of the monarchy is called the tyranny. In order to struggle and to, to triumph from the disorders and violences of the tyranny, well, the people is rebellious and gives the power to the, a small group of the wisest and the strongest several a little group the best so if they are the best you have the aristocracy aristos means the best in Greek few of them oligos in Greek means a few oligarchy and so you have a solution but the solution is also uh, subjected to the decay because the sons of the, the wisest are not necessarily wise. So you have the decay of aristocracy in something that is not aristocracy but precisely oligarchy where the few who govern, who have the power, do not use the power for the best of all, but for their own benefit. 
in order to then you have a revolt rebellion and now comes the solution of the or democracy the old name in Greek of the political all is demos democracy but it's possible that at one time the people the demos doesn't use the power in the interest of all but in in the interest of a a sub-part of the all that is the people as opposed to the other member of the people who are, for instance, the rich or the best-born and so on and so on. So, the democracy becomes something else. The power of the people becomes the power of the crowd and the Greek name for the crowd is Oklos and Oklochasi. This this distinction in three types doubled by three decade form and the idea that you have a cycle that goes from one to several to all and each time the, the change is, uh, has caused a decaying of the preceding form, this um, representation is the basis of almost all political philosophy in the Western world. And it's quite interesting, not only from a philological point of view, but also from a historical point of view, to notice that the revolutionary themselves in France were convinced that that would happen if they were not careful. It's a cycle. So the idea for, for Robespierre says when his uh, the assembly is uh, on the point to take a decision which was in fact catastrophic since the decision was to enter into the war against all Europe says well if you do so the revolution is ended the people will not have the power the power will go to a general a victorious general of course what is remarkable is that it happens exactly like that Napoleon was just a victorious general at the beginning. So, this Polybian representation was deeply ingrained in the uh, in the mind of the revolutionaries, but also it seemed to be confirmed by the turn of the events. If I had time, I would like to comment two things that revolution, French Revolution, or three things that revolution did. Uh, 
one thing is a reflection that seems to be accepted by everyone today but is not it seems to be understood by everyone today but is not namely a reflection about the distinction between droit de l'homme rights of men not human rights the difference between noun and adjective is important droit de l'homme et droit du citoyen the idea that the, the conditions for being a human being and um, are not the same as a condition for being a citizen. This is a, entails very, very deep reflection which has been almost completely forgotten, which has been criticized, in my opinion, in an unjust way, you know, essentially by Anna Arendt, well, who is the most brilliant critic of this conception. And I uh, wrote a whole chapter about that in order to to make clear that not only political action but also political theory was the center of the French Revolution. The second thing is a question of terror. terror. La terreur Under a lot of people in France, maybe elsewhere, consider that the Terreur and Robespierre are in fact the ancestors of Stalinism. If you read carefully what happened, it appears, two things appears. One thing is that terror was divided in two types for someone like Robespierre. You had the terror by the crowd, which was the political absolute evil and the terror, the terror by the law, which could be necessary at certain times. And the terror, the terror by the law was decided precisely in order to stop the terror by the crowd. The terror by the crowd was to Robespierre's mind, to Danton's mind, to all people who were at that time active, was the beginning of ochlocracy. 
And since there were plebeians in their mind, that was the end of the revolution and, of course, the beginning of a new monarchy that would be either the return of the, the previous royal family or worse, the, uh, the power of, of uh, any general. And you had a lot of generals at that time because it was a war. So, a lot of comment, comment, comments about the, the terror do not make this distinction. And although Hegel wrote one of the most, the deepest text about the terror in the phenomenology, he himself did not make this distinction. The terror by the crowd without the law or external to the law was represented by, for instance, the drownings of Nantes, where people in charge of the terror mm. built up boats with the removable uh, button, yes. And priests, noblemen, but also very ordinary people, uh, people who had been, had been denounced by, by their uh, neighbors, were by 20 or 30 were on the boat and when the, the boat arrived in the middle of, of the La Loire, the, the river, the bottom opened and they drowned. Robespierre thought that it was absolutely criminal because it was quite a contrary of what he had in mind when he, he talked about terror. For him, the terror was something that should be accomplished by a trial. And of course, at that time, death penalty was usual in all European countries, not on, only in France. And at that time, the most quote marks humane way of putting someone to death was considered to be the guillotine because it was it lasted very one instant uh, it, uh, it was a machine uh, did not uh, depend on an individual called le bourreau and so on and so on so the guillotine and it's why it is very interesting in Hegel's text that he considers as equivalent both types of death. So death by drowning and the death by guillotine. That means that he, he himself had not captured the deep distinction 
between the two types of terror. Terror by the crowd and terror by the trial, by the law. Nevertheless, one has to wonder why did Robespierre and others, but essentially Robespierre, did he consider terror as necessary? And why did he consider that at one moment suspicion was sufficient rather than proof? You have to ask something, you have to raise a question. But not without underlying, underlining the fact that the whole process of Robespierre's terror lasts one year. It's not a way of govern, govern, governing people. It's not a government. There is no government by terror. The terror is something that is necessity that makes government impossible. As opposed to the Stalinian terror, which is a way of governing. The Stalinist terror lasts for decades, let's say. And in fact, the Stalinist government is a government where terror is a mean of governing. In the case of Robespierre, his conclusion, we may not agree with that conclusion, his conclusion was that the situation was such, was a war, not only was it a war, but it was a war such that everyone could be a traitor because mm, money was uh, everywhere in order to pay traitors. He thought and concluded that governing a country was at that time impossible without terror. But terror was in fact in his own mind the country of a government as opposed to the Stalinist conception. The last point, scandalous to some, I made. The preceding point was scandalous to some people, but not the same people. (laughs) (laughs) Because to be for or against Robespierre is still an open question in France. The idea is that Robespierre was not fascinated by death, but was reasoning in political terms in a situation where politics became, to his own mind, impossible because of the war is of course a contradiction in terms it's in fact already a dialectic a dialectical 
situation. But of course, Robespierre did not think in terms of dialectics. It was either or that <coughs> the terror to Robespierre, Robespierre's terror in terms of either or is very difficult to, uh, to, to, to capture. But nevertheless, that's the way he thought of it. What the third thing, the third uh, point I made, which was scandalous to some, not the same, I repeat, was the fact that I connected one feature of, one very essential feature of French Revolution with the status it recognized to the right of property. As uh, remember, the Soviet revolution and the Chinese revolution thought that private property should disappear and th that it was a limitation of the French Revolution to have thought of, of a solution in terms of property. But on the other hand, what is very seldom underlined is that French Revolution sold a question that was has, had been unsold that remained unsold in Europe since the Roman Empire that is the question of the the property of the soil The notion of paysan, peasant, is a notion that has no meaning in France before French Revolution. Before French Revolution, the notion was fermier, farmer, métayer, in various terms. In other terms, people who worked on the soil but did not own the soil and paid a certain fee either in money or in uh, uh, kind well in uh, in, uh, you mean 10% of the product they return oh, to the yeah. Yes, but, but but also in work, no? uh, in work, in product, in fact, I yeah, mean, yeah, in yeah. fruits, in, yeah, uh, yeah. in uh, well, some uh, the, the best solution uh, was a solution of farming. Farming, in a narrow sense, a farmer is someone who pays in money, mm. as opposed to mm. the métayer who pays in product, mm. and the fermier could expect to become. Is not reasonably uh, well uh, have a, a good situation, while uh, the métier could not expect that. Mm -hmm. so, but in general, the fact was that 
the owner of the soil did not work on the soil, and those who worked on the soil did not own the soil. The situation was the normal situation in Europe since the Roman Empire, and in fact since the Roman Republic, since the, the, the instability of the Roman Republic was based on that precisely. The French Revolution, for the first time in French in uh, European history, built up a, built up a program. Of course, it was not effective immediately, but built up a program where the ideal was that people who worked on the, the soil were also owner of the soil. That is the narrow sense of paysan. When uh, Balzac wrote a novel whose title was Les Paysans, he described a new class of society, which was this class of people who owned the soil, worked the soil, and could become rich by doing so, which was in Balzac's conception quite scandalous thought that richness without instruction or without uh, nobility uh, just based on the fact uh, that you owned the soil and uh, worked on the soil was uh, a bad richness so his book about uh, his novel about the paysan is quite interesting to read because uh, it explains that's the reason why Marx admired it so much. It explained why peasantry in France ceased to be a revolutionary class. It ceased to be a revolutionary class because the agrarian question had been solved. And in fact, as opposed to the Chinese, the Soviet and Chinese revolution, which are characterized by the fact that they did not find any solution for peasantry and, on the contrary, created terrible situations for, for peasantry with terrible consequences, not only consequences in terms of uh, uh, simple, uh, simple life, but also uh, consequences for, for, from an, an ecological point of view. I recently learned that uh, in uh, Ukraine, uh, since the antiquity, you had certain, a certain earth called black earth, Chernozium. Mm. It was very fertile because you had some something like 15 meters of, uh, of earth while uh, in, for instance in the most uh, fertile part of France you have something like uh, 5 or 4 meters of soil well now in Ukraine the soil has disappeared the wind mm. has blown over everything because 
of the type of culture because uh, because of uh, the consequence of the fact that nobody thought the earth as something that he was responsible of. And of course, morally speaking, you may regret it, but in order to make someone responsible for the soil, one way is to, is to make him pro- the proprietor of the soil. That's the solution that the French Revolution uh, built up with, in fact, very short circulation. Uh, of course, this uh, situation is not true anymore, but for one century at least, it, uh, it, it existed. It seems to me that it cannot be, you cannot approach the question of private property without raising the question of the soil. If you do not do so, well, the result is to me unavoidable. What happened in Soviet Union, in fact, the destruction of the Russian peasantry, which became, well, with massacres and so on and so on, but at the end became a sort of variable of adjustment uh, for for policies that were uh, defined every five years, contradictory objectives were f- were were fixed to 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 to, to the peasantry. It, it didn't work, and worse the Chinese solution which now has produced the fact that Chinese peasantry has been deported massively has become a lumpen proletariat around surrounding the cities the the soil has been covered in many places by water with the, with the huge uh, dams and all that because the question that the French Revolution had raised people who worked on the soil has a right have a right to become owner of the soil, this question has not been raised and has not been raised by the notion of being proprietor of something had completely disappeared. So what was scandalous for some was the fact that I consider that the French Revolution were right, including the right of property among the rights of man. And that does not entail necessarily that capitalism is a part of the rights of man. There is a sharp distinction between the the property, the individual, the rights of individual property and the non-individual property which characterizes, on the contrary, capitalism. Well, well you've given all of us lots of uh, food for thought. I've got lots of questions, but... Okay. Goes first. first, I must say that 
I was so enthusiastic listening to you that that almost became a Deridean. No, no, in the sense of, uh, you know, when the, it was fashionable when Derrida was in, was in to fight the linear metaphysical notion of time. Mm. And my idea was, couldn't we stretch time but with you in a non, like 40 minutes would be one hour and 40 minutes, you know. Uh, so I will try to leave some time for the debate just to raise some questions. <coughs> but first, I was very touched by your introducing remark. And if I can briefly answer them, Yes, we personally didn't meet, but for me at least, it was something like, it's very personal what I will say, I read in a book on Andrei Tarkovsky that, you know, in his last years, the only place that he could get money to do a movie was Sweden. So, uh, he got an office there preparing Sacrifice, his last film, in the same building where Ingmar Bergman had also an office. But they took care of never meeting each other. Precisely because they had such a respect for each other that they were afraid. Like, So I think I would say even another thing. Many people tell me, but he is a Zionist. He should be your enemy, you, or whatever, what, no? And I, you know what's my answer to them? Not this stupid, no, but, but I say something different. I refer to that stupid American or even in English you have it here uh, phrase you remember when you have a friend who is a clumsy stupid friend who does a lot of damage to you and then the 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 saying is with friends like this who needs enemies <laughs> well with you I would say maybe we are enemies but with enemies like you who needs friends no? <laughs> that's what I would say let's go on there are so many things to say so I will, would like to be short. For example, when you mention that ideal revolution and so on, I think you have it in the book. A wonderful distinction which have, if you know history of theory, great echoes from Lacan to Hegel. I think you do draw it. The distinction between revolutionary ideal and ideal revolution. It's strictly parallel, for example, to, in Lacan, ideal du moi and moi ideal. And this reflexive term, I don't have time to go on it, has in Hegel, you find at the beginning of second volume of logic, the same from uh, uh, bestimmte reflexion, from determinate reflection to reflexive determination. Mm -hmm. There is a whole wealth there. But let's go, let me begin with this very important, I will just to get warm things up a little bit, at some examples which I love of this, how you pointed out this typically Stalinist, and I don't limit Stalinism just to Stalin. It's part of the communist, not only communist culture, this uh, retroactivity, how French Revolution was retroactively read. Uh, I always find so wonderfully stupid attempts, for example, do you know this? In East Germany, German Democratic Republic, in the last 15 years approximately of its existence, 
from mid-1970s, they had this great movement of rehabilitating their German past, as all, precisely in the way of French Revolution, pointing towards, like, Goethe's Faust, oh, we, re- we realized it in... And my favorite one is, they rehabilitated at the end even Frederick the Great. He became a progressive bourgeois king, and so on, uh, pointing towards, uh, and so on. But my favorite example is, I remember, in late 70s, early 80s, they made a TV series celebrating, of course, it was one, one of them, Martin Luther. But they had a problem there. Nonetheless, their heroes were also Thomas Munzer, peasant revolutionaries. So, you know, Luther, apart from short period in the beginning, wasn't exactly for peasant. Mm-hmm. How to do this? Oh my God, I love this. For things like this, I am nostalgic for coming. Uh, you know how they solved in the TV series? You have Munzer visiting Luther trying to convince him. And you know what Luther tells him? He speaks like today's Marxist. He says, your goal is right, but historically we are not yet that. Now we are at the period of uh, bourgeois revolution, we need this. Three, four hundred years later, you know, maybe your time will come. And the same as an old Maoist. You know, they do in China every 10 years where there is anniversary of 49 victory they do a new movie of the Chinese victory and in the last version which is very Hollywood made you have Mao pointing towards Deng Xiaoping <laughs> you have a famous scene Mao with a couple of guards walks around Beijing Pekin and said, oh my God, I don't have my cigarettes. There is uh, traffic there. Uh, let's go there and buy a cigarette. And uh, his companion tells him, sorry, president, but you know, uh, the owner of the traffic, uh, uh, traffic uh, escaped as revolutionaries. I cannot. And you know what Mao says? My God, I cannot even buy my cigarettes. You know what? Sometime, even if we take decades, we will have to bring capitalists back, you know. <laughs> now, I, I love this because, as you know, that's the highest sem- uh, uh, semiotic, hermeneutic pleasure of reading communist documents. How? When you have some new movement, change of line. First, it's usually hinted by, oh, you have taken an author 2,000 years old, we have to change, he's not good, or all of a sudden he is good. You know, for example, in China, I think that one of the signs of cultural revolution was that Mao all of a sudden was for legalists and mm-hmm. so on. It was apparently a debate about the first emperor and so on, but let's go on so that I don't get lost in these pure pleasures. <laughs> uh, Uh, I will, of course, it's my duty, but I will try to, not to totally convert you, but just to complicate a little bit. Isn't the paradox, nonetheless, of October Revolution that you can say it was all a manipulation, but Lenin was aware that they won with the slogan, land and peace. It's October Revolution at the beginning. They did, in a way, something similar to French Revolution. They gave land. That's why it was such a shock, like, ten years later, even less. No, ten years later, approximately. The land was taken, the land was, was, uh, taken, uh, was taken away from them. So, another point about October Revolution. Uh, 
when you mention this, the power of one and so on. Where I like Hegel here was that he tried to, but not in the simple legal way, separation of powers, to draw a distinction between the one, the king, who should, as Hegel puts it, just sign the name. The empty one, the empty master, Hegel says, it doesn't matter if he is an idiot or and then the experts. But what Hegel saw very well is that you have to have a gap. Expert should not have direct power. There must be a gap. And here I see a problem with Stalinism. Stalin did not pretend to be this empty master. He really... So here... Uh, uh, I'm referring, unfortunately, to a book which most of you do not know, Relire la Revolution, when you develop also in some other text of you how, you know, we shouldn't dismiss Stalin as this is the dream of some liberal communist. Everything was perfect in the 20s, Bukharin, blah, blah, and then idiot Stalin comes and says, why don't we kill a couple of millions? No, Stalin did intervene at a certain point of serious deadlock of the Leninist vision. And I agree with you how he brought in the real and all that. But my point would just be this one. I would uh, emphasize at the same time another point which I developed already many times. Nonetheless, in terms of Lacan, was not Stalinism in a way university discourse at its Purest. Stalin always presented himself as instrument of the people, expert, knowledge. You know where you can find this? Maybe, just to amuse you, I will give two examples that I often uh, refer to. When I watch old documentaries, you find them now all on YouTube, of, and you compare big speeches, I'm sorry some of you know this detail, by Stalin and by Hitler. It's typical how... Uh, in, when Hitler or fascist leader speaks, at the end the crowd applauds and the leader just receives the applause. Mm. A Stalinist leader always stands up and joins the applause. Mm. Like, I'm just one of you and so on and so on. This is also why we don't have time to go into it. Something like the Stalinist show trials, monster trials, is unthinkable in Nazism. It's not because they were better, but it's unthinkable for the Nazis, for example, to organize a big trial against the leading Jews and accuse them of Jewish plot or what. It didn't work that way. Why? Because I think that another thing, you should read them, it's very powerful reading. Now they are sometimes republished. Uh, this minutes published of the big Stalinist trials, like recently I read the one from 4950, mm -hmm. Las and all those. What fascinates me so much is that even the lowest trash, and they use all this anal terminology, your trash, vermin, whatever, shit. Nonetheless, at the same time, you are able to assume the position of pure meta-language and explain how did you become that. Like in Laszlo Reich trial, the prosecutor, some big Democrat like Wyszynski or who, I don't know, asks him, how did you become a traitor? And as if from some objective knowledge, uh, Laszlo Reich says, already when I was a young boy, my parents taught me to hate the working class or whatever. You know, my God, where does he talk from? And this goes to the end. In a book, I don't otherwise like it very much, and Applebaum Gulak, 
I read how in the worst years of Gulag, every year on Stalin's birthday, all inmates were gathered and they had to sign, each of them, a telegram to Stalin wishing him all the best and so on. In Nazism, this is unthinkable. Collect all the Jews in Auschwitz to send a telegram to Hitler or whatever. So what I'm saying is that even if you are the lowest trash, you Stalinism, unfortunately, in this sense, is still part of enlightenment. You may be trash, but there is some neutral knowledge, which is why, remember, Stalin's great text is that philosophy chapter, which is not even attributed. To, so I would, uh, I don't get lost, I would maybe emphasize a little bit more that the madness of Stalinism is nonetheless that its uh, university discourse brought to madness. More this. Second thing, when you said this three phases, revolution and so on and so on. Maybe I'm naive here. I don't try to save Lenin. I'm not one of those crazy Trotskyists who think if Lenin were only to survive three years longer, he would have made a pact with Trotsky and we would have a wonderful flowering Soviet Union. No. As you pointed out convincingly, uh, Stalin intervened by cutting, uh, proposing a certain formula in a deadlock. But nonetheless, what I would add is that wasn't this, in this strict sense, a revolutionary belief, in spite of, you quoted what Trotsky said and so on. I think that in the same way as Leninism itself, it was a Stalinist product. I think that only at that point, this with Lenin, it's still all much more ambiguous. He is not sure and so on, because we shouldn't forget that uh, Leninism itself is a Stalinist term. It was codified at that point. Uh, uh, let's, uh, let me go quickly so that we don't lose time. Next point, what you say about, I love those parts of his book, where he goes uh, how, into how, in spite of all these problematic points, the French Revolution is the only one with a truly universal appeal. In contrast, you do a very nice critique of Hannah Arendt, who idealized too much the American Revolution. And you point out very nicely that, in a way, it's only Lincoln with Lincoln, with civil war, that revolution is over, maybe even in the 1960s, and as the last stupid event in the United States, so maybe it's not over even now, you know. So what I'm trying to say is, why don't you mention, you know, the biggest event which made empirically French Revolution a world historical event is for me Haiti Revolution. It was something absolutely extraordinary. You have there half illiterate, if they were, they were not as primitive as they claimed, slave and so on, wanting just to become like French. You know, if you look at some revolutionary scene which makes me cry, it really makes me. You know what happened when Napoleon sent an army there to crush them? But he made a mistake. A strong presence in that army were Polish soldiers. And this is a legendary scene. They approached the slave army, French army. And then, this is a historical fact, they heard some singing. And they said, oh, probably some stupid African tribal songs. When they come closer... They, thought they were singing Marseillaise, the slaves. And that's the magic moment. Then, especially Polish, but also some French soldiers said, wait a minute, what if we are on the wrong side and change sides? 
and Napoleon, this was his first, maybe in Spain, uh, defeat and so on. It, and so this, this is, I think, part of your argument for the universal appeal, and it's, again, the glory to Jacobins. They immediately accepted it. They are our equal. Well, even American Revolution, even it is most liberal, radical, Thomas Jefferson, they uh, consider Toussaint Louverture uh, a monster and so on. Now, I just if you allow me to, uh, to finish with two further remarks, one is this one. I agree with you that, we, that this type of revolution what you call revolutionary belief, is over. But where I remain, it's meaningless today, not revolutionary, it's in a very naive, pessimist way. I nonetheless think that we are approaching on many levels, refugees, ecology, intellectual property, a certain deadlock, and something will have to happen. I'm not ready to engage in any easy predictions in what way. In this totally formal way, I remain not a revolutionary, but like uh, something will have to change, because if it will not change, then it will change nonetheless, but in a much worse way. So, this, but now the, the uh, uh, point which may, uh, which may surprise you, that I mention it, uh, uh, my final point, I like very much in another text, where you said something about uh, what repelled you from Maoism, when you got it that, I'm sorry if I simplify you, what, when you said that, like, you noticed that in Mao and so on, I'm simplifying you now, you should find, human lives don't count, to put it, survival doesn't count. It's not only this, it's another thing, I'm sorry if some of you already know it, it shocked me. Do you know Mao's speech, I think it's 59, at Lushan Conference, which shocked me with its obscenity. It was after the obvious failure of the great leap forward, mm -hmm. it was a moment of self-critique. Mao said, we have openly to admit, me the first thousands of people died, we made horrible mistakes, and then, this is not hidden in, it's the final paragraph of the text, that metaphors are never neutral, that shocked me. You know what Mao, maybe you know what Mao says there, I mean, I'm ashamed to pronounce these words here. He makes a comparison between this self-critique and, what's the vulgar word for flatulence, farting. He said, if you want to shit, shit. If you feel a need to fart, fart, you will feel better. That's how we should do our critique here. Now, uh, you know, he's talking about confessing openly guilt about uh, an immense catastrophe. And in what sense does he use this as a metaphor? Like, this throws a totally new light on this self-criticism, if you compare it with this, with this uh, activities and so on. But the very last thing to provoke you about uh, cultural revolution. You know where I am? Would you agree? And uh, this brought me a violent reply from Badiou, of course. I said that... I'm here very Hegelian, like list der Vernunft, coming of reason into what things turn. Uh, uh, 
I think that in the the way that you said that the Chinese reproach to Soviet Union was you brought uh, revisionism, uh, Khrushchev, and so on. But isn't can't we say retroactively that the actual result of cultural revolution is Deng Xiaoping? It erased tradition, mm-hmm. it emptied the slate, and it created these disoriented individuals. The ideal playground for let's introduce the market now and so on. So that's what hardline Maoists who still are cannot that they, uh, cannot accept that uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping was not simply a betrayal. In some deeper Hegelian sense, he is maybe even the result of it. But Okay, you can choose whatever of my confused ramblings. I would just like, if you just give, where do you stand? Your, I, am I a pessimist too much? Do you agree that at some level we are approaching some critical point? And that, I'm not saying now we need that revolution, definitely not. I'm just saying that in some way... Things will happen if we want it or not. My pessimism is that the true utopia is that our relative welfare, the way we have it now, can go on indefinitely. You know, we should just be silent, modest, sacrifice. No, it will not go on. We are approaching serious times. This is the only reason that I remain not leftist. I even don't know what will it be. But, like... Things will have to change radically, for good or for bad. I'm sorry if I was too long, please. Strike back, harsh. I shall begin by the end. Uh, what, what you were saying about uh, the, the result of cultural revolution, uh, I uh, held this... Uh, I hold the same point of view. And it's not well received, probably, by... uh, No, no, (laughs) no, it was not. Uh, It seems to me that uh, what the Cultural Revolution in some way proved uh, is that it's very easy to destroy a class. Uh, While... uh, the same was not true for for uh, French Revolution. Uh, French Revolution did not re- think in terms of destroying a class. Well, of course, uh, the noblemen were deprived of their privileges and so on and so on. But the idea of of killing all the uh, the noblemen was never was never considered. Uh, the, the only moment where uh, where the question may have been raised is with the, is a question of of the priest, which is a, a dramatic question. Mm. But nevertheless, the idea, and for instance, Robespierre never thought that uh, that priests should disappear completely. Mm. While uh, in uh, in China, in Chinese Revolution, uh, the Cultural Revolution, uh, the idea, which is quite different from what happened uh, in uh, in the first part of the Chinese Revolution was that a whole class, namely the class of the intellectually about mm. the students, well, let's say uh, 
Well, yes. Uh, people who had nothing else, property has mm. disappeared, but what remained was intellectual property. I mean, the property of its own talent. This should disappear. And cultural revolution tried to do so, and in fact achieved that. For it's clear, all the documents are there. People died, but also uh, books were burned. Uh, it was impossible to to uh, to, to study anything. Uh, the notion of talent was uh, was uh, er completely erased. The The, easy, the, the, the fact that it's easy to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to obtain, uh, to, get, to get such a result, proves that uh, it should be done with another class. And uh, it's, it's, in fact, what happened to, uh, to peasantry after that. So, to me, I wouldn't say exactly, but it's the same thing, that, uh, that uh, cultural revolution prepared retroactively we can it, say again. it prepared what, what is happening now that is, that is a China with capitalism yeah, yeah. and without and without peasants which is exactly the country of uh, what uh, the cultural revolution explicitly stated the idea the ideal uh, being a China with peasants everyone being a peasant and without capitalists. But in fact, the, 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 the practice of the Cultural Revolution showed that it's very easy to make a whole social class disappear. In fact, uh, it's very easy because the existence of a class is connected with the existence of the bodies that compose that class. And so once the question of survival is reduced to an ideology, so the, the expression was uh, the ideology of survival is to be, uh, to be fought, uh, fought against, the idea that survival is an ideology was to me when I was a Maoist and when I discovered this uh, expression was uh, to me the, the, the point I, I could not... Sir, but uh, Lin Biao put this even more radically than Mao, I think. It was yes, Lin Biao, yeah. well, the idea that uh, what, what, ha what happened after Mao's death uh, must have an explanation. Hmm. Well, why did Lin Biao and, uh, and uh, four of his uh, uh, Friends, political friends, disappear in a, in a, in a, in, a, in an accident. Well, that must be at least uh, a political struggle. If if there is a political struggle, it cannot be reduced to the f to, 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 to the, the result of the death of Mao's death. Yeah, it must have be, uh, be, begun uh, before that. It seems that uh, the use of the, uh, uh, the little red book as a sort of fetish fetish 
it was an invention of Lin Piao. So, for instance, but you think that there, there, there was one cultural revolution that was bad, which was Lin Piao's cultural, cultural revolution, and one cultural revolution that was good, that uh, was represented by the Shanghai mm. commune. Well, I, I, <laughs> I've read the documents. What, what it means that at least... The, the bad cultural revolution held the power uh, during, mm. uh, during because Lin Piao was in power, not the Shanghai's commune. Mm. So, so uh, it, to me, it's uh, sort of uh, frivolous to to, to think uh, that uh, a, politi- a, a historical event should be analyzed from the point of view of those who have no power on it mm. rather than from the point of view of those who have the power and of course in Nazi Germany you had for instance uh, the, the white rose they, uh, they, they fought but you cannot judge Nazi Germany from the point of view of the white rose mm-hmm. you have to, to judge Nazi Germany from the point of view of those who, ha- who had, had the power so well that's another, another question uh, but I, I would like to, to answer to, uh, to, mm-hmm. to, 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 to another to another point uh, <clears throat> It's uh, well. The question of what will happen now uh, is deeply connected with uh, the determination of the zones. where uh, stability is at its lowest point. Mm. And in my mind, the the part of the world where the stability is at its lowest point is Western Europe. Because the solution it it had found, which is solve the the outcome of the Second World War in terms of peace, prosperity, and a sort of uh, multi-side alliance where each government uh, guarantees the stability of the others so, for instance, if there is something that uh, that would happen in France, it's clear that uh, Germany would uh, would do what it's uh, what it's necessary uh, for for some stability to to, to to be restored. I think that this this system of uh, of uh, uh, reciprocity mm-hmm. of stabilization is now uh, reaching its end. Or its limits. Uh, what is happening in uh, Spain, in Catalonia, mm. is uh, uh, it seems to me uh, m- much more important than it, than it seems, mm. because it's mm. if mm-hmm. if uh, the uh, European Union sh- shows itself to be unable mm. to stabilize this situation, 
that prove that its reason for existing, mm. I mean, yeah. uh, Europe, uh, have disappeared. Mm. And so, what's, it may not be a revolution, but uh, it may be a series of events uh, that prove the... In fact, the great discovery of the of the end of the 20th century is that the state is not stable by itself. In the, in the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th, 20th century, people thought that it's, it's, true, it's true even of Lenin in, in State and Revolution, that the state was a stabilizer. In uh, favor of uh, of the bourgeoisie, or in favor of uh, of, uh, of of uh, of uh, the people, that that was another question. But but the state was stable by itself. So if you had factor of destabilization, the state was there to stabilize. It seems to me that the great discovery of the 20th, the end of the 20th century is that the state is not stable by itself. Mm. It, it needs other stabilizers. One stabilizer was, is, but for a certain time it seemed to be sufficient, is what was called generally the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie is the stabilizing class. It's not a class dominant, dominating class. Ruling class. Ruling class. That's not true. The bourgeoisie doesn't rule. Uh, in fact, a small subgroup of bourgeoisie is ruling. No, but bourgeoisie as a whole is stabilizing. Or was still recently necessary mm. and sufficient. Now, it's still necessary, but it's not sufficient. And the role of the European Union is that the European Union supplements, in fact, the bourgeoisie and stabilizes the various countries. Each, uh, each country is stabilized by the other. If it, ha it happens that uh, in Spain this system fails, well, it will fail everywhere. So, maybe Great Britain was right <laughs> to, go, to go out. But, of course, the stabilizing factor of Great Britain would be the United States in that case, which may be not so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I will add, don't be afraid. One I'm sentence. Not afraid. Did you or somebody else introduce here what you said about bourgeoisie no longer being able to play this role? Yes, yeah, I did. There is a wonderful term that this new bourgeoisie emerging in post-communist Europe, mm -hmm. they are what we should call following lumpen, lumpen bourgeoisie. Yes. They are. <laughs> they are not yet this. Okay, I don't admire bourgeoisie, but they are. It's so clear they are not ready to play this role. They're no. lumpen bourgeoisie. So that's that's, that's very clear. I, I shut up now. I'm no, not at all. I, I'm just uh, really grateful to both of you and to the audience. Uh, it's 
almost eight o'clock, then they haven't shown any That's what I want. Now we out. have one minute for no, no, a debate. No. Yeah, no, you'd be so lucky. Yeah. I'm going to pass the microphone to people who do want to ask a question. If you don't mind, we can hold, take them all together. Is that all right? Uh, I'm getting Kinail. If there are more than three, I forget them. Uh, uh, yeah, can we do that? So, and you're okay answering a few questions. But please, okay? he is our guest. Uh, anyone who wants to. Jacques said before about the Haitian Revolution. Where do you stand on the Haitian Revolution? Thank you. And the Black Jacobins and C.L.F. James. Any other? No, I. I. Oh, I. Do you want me to, to yeah. answer that? Yeah. Uh, it's a tragedy. It's a, it's a tragedy because uh, because uh, it was not underst- completely understood. Uh, it was uh, abs- let's say abstractedly understood by uh, by uh, by some part of uh, of the revolutionaries, but it was not. Completely understood. Uh, there is a great difference between slavery uh, in in France and in, in slavery in the United States. Uh, slavery was not something uh, that people knew. It was an abstract notion. They knew it existed, of course. Uh, some some people made money uh, by selling. Uh, well. By uh, trading, uh, Voltaire, for instance, uh, made m- some. It seems a lot of money, uh, uh, but uh, I, I don't think he ever saw a slave. Uh, that's a big difference with the United States, where slavery was something that could be seen uh, every day, at least in some uh, in some in some states. So. The position about uh, about uh, slavery and the, the rights of slaves was an, an abstraction, uh, and people who uh, sided with uh, with uh, the Haitian Revolution sided uh, with it for abstract reasons, mm-hmm. and 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 in fact. Uh, for uh, abstract reasons, uh, uh, an Arendt would say, uh, uh, with a sort of uh, uh, very haughtily, mm-hmm. that uh, they were moved by 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 uh, compassion. Uh, it was more than pure compassion; it was also a political uh, argument, but it was abstract. So, when the lobby because there was a lobby of uh, slave owners uh, who spoke in terms that were, let's say, quote Marks concrete, saying, well, uh, prosperity is based on slavery and things like that. Well, there was no, uh, no answer. So... Do you want to take them all together or one stream? No. Hi, uh, this is directed at both uh, Schlagwein Um It regards what he was talking about, the reciprocity between the states, the stability of one 
that is always thought of as guaranteeing its safety and so on, and um, the European Union. And I know how dangerous comparisons are, but I don't want to make them. It's just food for thought. And thinking about Yugoslavia as well, and Slovenia, and leaving, and I don't want to make that. This, what, what can they throw back in relation to this, and where, where we things were, and how things are? touch a very sensitive yes. point. Because I will be very brief. Did you notice this absolutely disgusting hypocrisy that the same leftists who at that point when Yugoslavia was falling apart said no this is some dark I don't know neo-Nazi Vatican plot which were absolutely for Yugoslav unity are now fully for Catalonia. Uh, no sorry uh, yes for Catalonian autonomy and the other way around. Those many right-wingers in Europe who supported the dispersal of Yugoslavia are now absolutely supporting the uh, uh, unity of Spain and so on. It's clear that there are some other geopolitical uh, uh, problems here. But I would like to ask you something else which was wrong. Don't, don't you see that this uh, already with the problem about which you wrote some wonderful lines of refugees, mm -hmm. this fiasco of Europe began? Mm -hmm. That there was no united politics and the worst possible thing happened. This totally chaotic situation then, what is emerging now, what I'm almost tempted to call the new axis of evil, Croatia, Slovenia, Hungary, Poland, those countries who even they pretend to, they are, that's the beautiful paradox that I like. They are at the same time anti-Semitic and anti-Arab, you know. That's a true axis of evil. And again, this total disorientation of Europe. At the end, my God, uh, how is my God, the, the Hungarian guy? The, yeah, Orban. I always confuse him. I always like this Urbi at Orbi. We had Urbi, now we had Orbi. That Orban will win. Silently, he is already winning. So the fiasco that you are mentioning began there already, if not earlier. Well, I'm sorry. I, I, I wouldn't uh, dis disagree necessarily with, uh, with you because uh, <coughs> if you look closely at, uh, on, on the question of refugees, uh, something that, uh, that is not always uh, mentioned is the fact that France, for instance, was uh, very... Uh, parsimonious. Uh, well... Uh, mm -hmm. Why? Because, in fact, the question of refugees was connected with the question of immigration, which is quite completely different. Immigration in France, immigration is connected with the fact that people are living definitely or for, for long period of time on the French soil. Some of them become French citizens who are already French citizens because, because in the term immigré uh, people include very easily uh, children of, immig of immigré children who are legally French citizens. So the question of refugees is quite different because refugees in France 
generally do not want to to become French mm. and do not want to live in France. That's a, so what appeared is that according to the various countries, Germany, for instance, has a big problem, which is uh, the fact that uh, its, its population is uh, declining in number, is growing old, and so the question of retirement pensions is becoming difficult. Well, not very difficult, but it will become difficult. So, the, 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 uh, the possibility of having a, a, a certain number of refugees is, uh, solves a question or problem, while in France it would not solve the same problem. It would, in fact, make it more difficult. So, What, uh, what appeared is that what had functioned in a sort of system that was uh, uh, like uh, uh, well in fact protected from, uh, from the, the disorders of the world uh, and uh, whose sole question was to be stable in itself like uh, let's say a physical system must be stable in itself because well it may be stable because it is protected from from the outside well the question was europe is not it is not anymore protected from the outside it it was a new fact It was a new fact. It, was complete, it is completely different from, uh, from uh, the fact that uh, Turks were arriving uh, in, in Germany or, uh, or uh, North Africans were arriving in France. That, that was part of the stabilization. That, uh, that's not, uh, that was not a problem. While uh, the, what, what was happening there was a destabilization. And it was a destabilization that affected the main countries of, uh, of Europe. If, if Europe is destabilized, well, uh, it, doesn't, uh, it has no use. So people like uh, the Orban will, uh, will be quite, uh, it will be quite easy for him to say, well, Europe is used, useless, so let's go out out of Europe, or let's let's treat Europe as 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 a as a milking cow, just for the, for the for the milk it gives. Just two more last questions we'll take together. That's all right. Um, and then we can uh, thank. Hello. Um, So, uh, I'm not very well versed in philosophy lately. I've studied it nearly a few years ago. But from what I remember, uh, in Marxist theory, there was also like the kind of the monopolization of the medium of production. Um, and, um, you know, in this historical period, we're seeing kind of new tools of domination, like information. 
uh, and technology. So, uh, how do we, like, how does history evolve when these new powerful tools of domination that are going, that create new classes, new dominant classes? Um, you know, what is, like, how does that play in that cycle? that uh, you were talking about, that you both were talking about, and I would like to hear both of you guys. You mean that cycle, uh, uh, monarchy, oligarchy, and so on, that big... Yes, Uh because we have this new, you know, data and information that, that, you know, are really changing the way that uh, we are are subjected to power. So you mentioned in your talk uh, a cycle of different kinds of governments decaying from one to the next, uh, and you described democracy as decaying into a rule by crowd. Uh, which some people would describe as populism. I wonder if you think uh, that's an accurate description of this rule by crowd, um, if you see that as what's happening now with populism in you know, the United States, here, Spain, and elsewhere. Um, and if that's the case, do you think populism is always something bad? I think the two questions go well together. I <laughs> Well, to your question and the preceding question are some, some, somehow connected in, in my in my mind. The new new technologies new technologies have defined a new type of crowd. Uh, there is a, a quarrel uh, today. Uh, Last uh, the last three days in France about the question about the uh, formula that was used by uh, by uh, President Macron. Uh, la démocratie, ça n'est pas la rue. Démocratie is not street. And uh, I was struck by the fact that uh, people argued as if. Street, the street was still the uh, the place for the crowd, but I don't think that's true anymore. Uh, the crowd, from the point of view of the new technology, uh, that's uh, Facebook, that's uh, Twitter, and so on and so on. So when uh, President Trump tweets. It has more to do with ochlocracy in the term, in the sense of uh, of Polybius, mm-hmm. uh, than uh, than with uh, monarchy or, or tyranny. Uh, if you think of uh, Hitler, Hitler made use of what was a modern technology at at his time, that is radio, and the voice of Hitler was in fact the basis of his power uh, because radio was in fact the, 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 the basis of what of it was the, the, the place where the crowd 
was uh, was really uh, built. Uh, so the idea that crowds are connected with open spaces, uh, uh, that it's uh, Nuremberg, uh, uh, the streets, I think that's not true anymore. At some, sometimes a crowd was uh, radio or it was uh, the movies. Uh, uh, today, uh, today it's, uh, it's clear that uh, Internet uh, is, uh, is a place for the crowd. So, clocracy uh, will, uh, will, uh, is taking new form. And talking about destabilization, it's clear that uh, Internet has a power of destabilization that is uh, incomparable uh, with, uh, with the destabilization that the street could, uh, could produce. The, 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 st- the street is uh, something that uh, could be uh, uh, dominated by, by pure physical force. Uh, the uh, internet it's it's quite it's quite different so i think yes the, the notion various notion of uh, uh, crowd of uh, stabilization of power uh, are affected by uh, the uh, the apparition of of new of new technologies uh, so that's the reason why uh, your, your two questions were connected. Mm. Uh, very briefly, because uh, yes. so that we are not thrown out. First, just I want to reply. Yes, when you said Hitler voice, wasn't this wonderfully intuited by Charlie Chaplin, the great exactly. dictator, where Hitler is literally, first you see him as a creature of voice, mm-hmm. shouting and so on. It is as if with normal people although it's not as simple as that voice is the property of me mm-hmm. but with Hitler it's as if his body is attached to the voice it's just, okay, let's not lose time here I want to just to ma- mention this uh, point about how you say about internet destabilizing, that's why for example, how obsessed the big one Democra- uh, People's Republic, China is with controlling internet they see this and how, with what irrational, okay, maybe it's not irrational strength, they do it, but I want to do another thing. I'm sorry we don't have time, because I think all with this new media, new relations of power, I think that it's also, even if he may be the richest man, uh, Bill Gates and so on, but it's no longer the classical bourgeoisie. Because if you first think I I don't know enough about economy, but I'm tempted to accept it. That if you look at, for example, Microsoft, it's not the classical exploitation profiteering, it's more that through monopolizing the field of uh, hardware, software, or communication, we are paying him a rent. A rent to participate in the common, like, you have, or it's the same with Amazon. 
they almost monopolize certain distributions and it's no longer like even uh, Bill Gates is even paying his workers there are just uh, one to three thousand or what relatively well and he doesn't even think in these terms that's how a certain product the new version of Windows costs me I should add a profit rate and so on the price of new Windows has practically no relation whatsoever to the, to the production costs I think that you, in your book, it's again not translated, no. and as a Stalinist, I'd say we should call our NKVD, KGB mm-hmm. friends, to inquire who is sabotaging <laughs> this. Like, uh, because he wrote a wonderful short book on this notion of salaried bourgeoisie. That today we have, like, even if, like, a typical wealth today, it's a different way. It's a highly paid manager who gets a salary. It's no longer the old type of bourgeoisie. And just the last point here, a new type of, I'm ashamed to use the term public intellectual, but in the lowest sense they are, is emerging, and I'm almost afraid more of them than of Trump and so on. People like uh, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, I'm horrified when some idiot like Zuckerberg appears in our media and gives common advices that's what to do for humanity and so on and so on. I find something, this is the new which I found terrifying. I stopped. Yeah. Just, just a point. In, in Marxist term, you could, you could argue that the real exploited workers uh, whose uh, working force mm. is producing mm. uh, the mehrwert mm. uh, surplus value okay. surplus value for uh, for twitter to facebook etc are the users uh, of uh, of uh, of the, uh, this uh, this uh, mm. technology so in fact each time i uh, i don't tweet but each time i tweet in fact, my working time is the time I'm writing my tweet. And this is the time where uh, the surplus value is produced for the owner of, uh, of, uh, of the, t- uh, the Twitter technology. So the notion of exploitation and the notion of surplus value and uh, working force uh, are also distributed in a in yeah, a in a, in a different way in a different way that's why in my ideal new humanist totalitarian state yeah. prohibit uh, prohibit twitter prohibit facebook but that would be my <laughs> sorry sorry that's that my small idea i'm uh, sorry given uh, lacan's uh, long before twitter say, say that he refused to give his teaching in bite-sized pieces. It's almost like he predicted Twitter, and this is what Twitter is trying to do, give us everything in bite-sized chunks. Yeah, but it's not just there. If you look political debates on American TV, you cannot even develop a basic line of argumentation. It's just, if you get 30 seconds, it's almost a miracle. So just this, you should shout quickly something you know. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine a better way to start the weekend. I, I did... I, 
we've had so many beautiful ideas to ponder. Rather than choose between the two of you, can I quote from a third person, you know, like Balibar, who was, uh, who's also been talking about revolutions recently in mm. Greece. And he suggests, you know, he says, you know, that uh, we are in, our century is one where the opposite of Rousseau's prophecy seems to be the case. It's not the imminent return of revolutions, but the exhaustion of the idea, or at least the, the failure of revolutions. But also to go back to Beckett, that you were, his new mm. book is called The Incontinence of the Void, that we should be reordering. Mm-hmm. So if the revolution is going to fail, mm. I guess we can try and fail better. No, but I would like to end up, if I may, with an homage to you. Yeah, yeah, always, always, always. <laughs> with an homage to you, you know Lacanian definition of the real, at least in early Lacan, mm-hmm. what always return to the same place. Exactly. So you are our real, so you will have to come back here Yay. again. Thank you. <laughs>